welcome to the Serviced Accommodation Property Podcast. This podcast by Kevin Paneskis, also known as the Property Soldier, covers all aspects of serviced accommodation and how to make it a profitable and sustainable business. Kevin started investing in property in 1991 whilst serving in the British Army and now owns a multi-million pound property portfolio and serviced accommodation business and is a best-selling author. And now your host, Kevin Paneskis. Today, we have got a speaker who's going to be speaking to my live audience. And uh, the speaker today is Ray McLennan of Raising Angel Finance. What does that mean? Well, ultimately, Ray has got an awful lot of high net worth individuals on his books, and he helps them by placing their money into property deals. And that's often where people listening to this podcast, people in the audience might want to message Ray, going on to uh, Ray's website, Raising Angel Finance, filling out an application form, and that will be looked at um, for anyone that wishes to be um, raising money for property investment or actually any other type of project. Ray is your man. Now, Ray's presentation today is focusing on successful pitches or people that are successful in raising money and also people who are unsuccessful in raising money. So you definitely want to be paying full attention to this because most people would like to be raising finance in order to be building a property portfolio or uh, in business in general. So this should be a really fascinating uh, talk. I'm really looking forward to it. So Ray himself, he is a serial entrepreneur and business owner and property investor. In fact, last year he converted a, a, a large, larger hotel or you know, large guest house B&B type hotel and converted that into 33 um, studio rooms as, and it is now an apart hotel. So as well as property in general, he is also in the serviced accommodation space. So it's my absolute pleasure to introduce Ray McLennan, everyone. Thank you, thank you. Don't forget your face mask. Oh. <laughs> I'm not going to make a joke about I'm wearing a mask already. You can take it off. We've all heard that one before. Um, uh, so uh, anyone here has never heard me speak before? Oh, quite a few. All right, okay. Um, I'd probably wonder why I'm standing here, apart from what Kevin has just said. Um, I'll give you a very brief sort of CV of, of uh, what I've done. Um, I grew up in an uh, sort of entrepreneurial family, except my dad was called a businessman then. He wasn't called an entrepreneur. He had pubs and hotels and various other things. Um, and he was a sort of, there's a phrase called classic British alpinism, which means he's claiming the success, but he never left any clues. He didn't leave a rope. He didn't give us any guidance. I have older brothers and sisters and I'm the youngest. And we all just thought, well, dad's doing it. How hard can it be? You know, we'll just, we'll do it, that kind of thing. Um, and I remember when I left school, uh, about a week after I left school, I'm sat at home. We had a, quite a big house, you know, a big, big house. Um, it, we had a room about this size with a fireplace at one end and a bay window at the other. And I used to play five-a-side football in it with my friends. So just to give you an indication of, you know, it was a biggish house. And shortly after we got it, he uttered a phrase you've probably never heard before and I've never heard since. We were thundering around like cattle in this room. And he came in, opened the door, and all my friends froze, like, oh, we're doing the wrong thing here. And he said, no, 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 you can play football here, no problem. He said, just, we have to take the chandelier down. 
and it was like a scene from Old Fools and Horses. About two days later, a guy came to wind and take this chandelier out of the way, so we wouldn't break it. But anyway, when I left school, and uh, and uh, you know, my father was. He had ice cream vans and all sorts of things. I mean, he grew up during the sort of the war and then the aftermath of the war. So it was all very much, you know, um, survival of the fittest and all that kind of carry on and austerity and, and that sort of thing. So when I left school, I'm sat at the table, the kitchen table in this huge kitchen with aga cookers and things and a big wooden table that was there with all the chairs around it. Um, and my mother had put the breakfast down and I was just about to tuck into the breakfast. And he came over and he took the plate away. And he looked me straight in the eye. He said, you give your mother 35 quid every Friday or you can find somewhere else to stay. And then he put the plate down because that's just what happened then. There was none of this boomerang kids and, you know, <laughs> and concept to them. It was, nope, look, you're, you're a man now. You can get out. So I did naturally what most people would do. I went to the pub to discuss it with my friend who'd had a similar uh, approach from his father. I said, what are we going to do? And we were having a couple of beers there. And this guy came over, put his arm around us. He said, you look a couple of fit young lads. You should, you should join the army. And we looked at each other and thought, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, that'll show them. Yeah, yeah. Accommodation, food, money. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So um, shortly after that, we were both at uh, basic training. And uh, towards the end of the basic training, we got separated and I got sent off to do officer training. So I actually went to Sandhurst. And then I was in Germany for a while and noticed that there was a big disparity between beer in the UK and beer in Germany. And the guys who came back from Germany to the UK were complaining about the beer and they couldn't get it anywhere. So I decided to bring some beer from Germany in because I now had all the junior ranks club, all the sergeants messes, all the rest of it, who all said, absolutely, we'll take five cases, we'll take 10, we'll take, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I had an order for two 40-foot cases, uh, 40-foot containers of beer within about a week. And under military regulations, they had to pay on delivery. Whereas the suppliers in Germany were giving me 60 days credit. I was in the beer importing business. How hard can it be? So I discovered that when I went down to the docks to get the beer, uh, a man with a clipboard from HMRC said, I'm afraid you can't take it away. He says, you've got to pay duty and VAT. I'm like, duty and VAT? And then I looked at it and I said, so the VAT's on the duty, which is already a tax. So it's a tax on top of a tax. I don't make the rules, it's eight grand before you can take anything away, that's it. It's like, damn, of course I didn't have eight grand, what am I gonna do? I went to see my bank manager, Norman Wilson, Clydesdale Bank, Churchill in Edinburgh. Went to see him, lovely guy. And I went in to see him and I told him what my challenge was. And he said, well, how much have you got in your account? I said, I have no idea, and he looked at it. And there was a couple of thousand pounds in there or whatever. And he said to me over the glass, he said, so you basically you don't have the money, right? You want a loan from the bank? I said, yeah, I do. He said, right, okay. And he shouted out, Margaret, open an account for Mr. McLennan. What's the name of your business? I went, I don't know. So we made up a name there and then, called that. The woman came in with one of those little checkbooks you got with six checks in it where they wrote the bank details on the bottom. Do anyone remember those? Anyone here, anyone here old enough to remember those <laughs> checks? Right? They wrote that on the bottom. That was my first checkbook with the name of the thing written in it. He then typed up what was called an irrevocable mandate for 8,000 pounds and I had to sign it adopted as holograph. So this was before the Requirement of Writing Act 1996, those of you that are trying to work it out, because I can see you are. So uh, he typed this up, I signed it, and uh, I gave me a banker's draft made out to HMRC for eight grand. My account was immediately eight grand in, in the red, but I went back and I got the beer, and a couple of days later, it was pretty much all paid for. 
So I did that for a while. I, had a, I then had a shop in Edinburgh, which was called the Wine Basket in Dundas Street, next to Clark's Bar, for those of you that know. Um, and uh, we, we used to sell champagne out of there. And then uh, champagne sales went absolutely through the roof because I employed a woman called um, Frances. And Frances knew every gay guy in Edinburgh and convinced them all to come and buy champagne. So, this, so our business, importing champagne now, just, just went crazy. Um, I supplied some restaurants, and one of the restaurants couldn't pay me the bill, couldn't pay me his bill, but he said, look, we've got a nice site over there. It's all fitted out for a restaurant. Why don't you get yourself a restaurant? Here's the keys in lieu of the thing. I was now in the restaurant business. How hard can that be? So, um, so I, had, I started off with one restaurant and then two, and then I was running around like a headless chicken um, because running a restaurant is quite tricky. It's sort of morning till night. Um, if you like babysitting adults, have a restaurant, especially chefs. Um, but I, I got a bit frustrated one time and I went to, to, to see this accountant because I was doing, trying to do all the accounts myself in a ledger, you know, before QuickBooks and all that sort of carry on. Um, and he's, I remember giving him the accounts and he, said, and he pushed them back. He said, no, no, I'm going to show you how to do the accounts. I said, I'm not interested in doing the accounts. And he pushed them back and he said, I'm, I'm going to show you how to do the business properly. And I pushed them back. I said, I want you to do it. That's what I'm paying you for. He said, no, no, you don't understand. And he pushed them. I said, you don't understand. It went back and forward like this. Anyway, he was uh, an accountant who was a member of an organization called the Results Accountant Network. Has anyone ever heard of them? No, they're all, they're all over Australia, America, UK. V very good. If you ever get an accountant who's been, in fact, Shaz Nawaz, who is sort of the, the people, that, the go-to accountant for here, was a member of the Results Accountant Network. Great, great organizations. They were business development specialists rather than just accountants. They didn't want to do compliance work. They wanted to show you how to grow the business. And he gave me a book called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Has anyone read it? Yeah, fantastic. When I read, and that book was about uh, well, a sort of cake shop. Uh, and I read that voraciously. I went back to his office and said, this is fantastic. I want to do all this. And he said, well, it's 28 grand a year. And I was like, Pfft. and he said, First installment, three and a half thousand, pay it now and we'll get up and running. And I was very much, oh God, I can't afford, you know, all the, I came out with everything. But he was like, look, you can't afford not to do it. If you want to grow the business, you have to go through it. And that was my first sort of pain of having to pay for something when I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen, you know, at the end of it. But fortunately, it worked out because I ended up 12 restaurants, 150 staff. Um, they then were sold because they were leaseholds and I, I just kind of had enough of that business. Um, and I wanted to do something else. And, and, and you know how, I think it was Steve Jobs that said, you join the dots up at the back, don't you? You, don't, you, can't, you can see forward, but you actually join the dots up by looking back. And at that time, having sold the restaurants, the, the, the lawyer who was dealing with all of that, he gave me his bill, which was double what it should have been. So naturally, we had a discussion about that. Some people say Alec Ferguson gave people the hairdryer treatment. Uh, it was something similar to that, during which he uttered the immortal phrase, well, if you think being a lawyer is easy, why don't you become one? And I went, I will, because if you can do it, it can't be that hard. And I immediately went and signed up to do a law degree, not intending to be a lawyer, but because I now had time and money but I, and I was interested in it and I was a little bit older and I'd been in business, so it kind of made sense. That and my father then confessed to me, he said, do you remember that time I took that plate away from you? And I, he said, I was very disappointed in you, you didn't go to university. You'd have been the first person in our family to go to university and you didn't go. I said, well, you never even told me. You never told me. And he said, well, 
I was disappointed. So I'm glad you're going to university now to do this. So I was like, right, fine, okay. So I did, uh, uh, I did a law degree, but not really intending to be a lawyer. But then I met the lawyer walking down the street one day, and he said, how are you getting on? And I said, I took your advice. I'm nearly finished my law degree. He said, well, you've come this far. Why don't you go the whole hog and become a lawyer? So I had no plans to become a lawyer. He said, oh, come on, you're almost there. Get in the club sort of thing. And I went, oh, because I have to do a diploma, and then I have to do two years as a trainee. Oh, I'm not interested in any of that. I'll give you a traineeship, he said, in the firm that he was in. 20 partners, 100 and something staff. I'll give you a traineeship. You don't need to worry about that. I said, right, okay. I said, I'll tell you what. If I pass, because you, the way it works, if you get a degree, a law degree, you then need to do a diploma in legal practice. But there are only so many diploma places. So to give you an idea, it's if, if 1,500 people have a law degree, there are 500 diploma places. And, and you pay for them. Um, and, and they're quite expensive. So that puts a lot of people off. A lot of people want a degree, but they don't want to necessarily do the diploma. And you get selected for the diploma. So what they do is they have a huge sort of chart of all the names of all the people that have passed exams. And then they have the, the, the scores over here. And if your score is above a line, you get offered a diploma place. If your score is below the line, you don't. Simple as that. When I was at school, they used to put your name up with the results. But they're not allowed to do that anymore. Because when they put the names up, whoever was at the bottom, everyone, Meh. and whoever was at the top, it was like, Meh. So everyone was sort of, you know, so they stopped doing that. So they would give you a number. So I had a university number. And I remember when the scores in the doors came out and I went and looked, I naturally gravitated towards the center looking for my number. And then I went down the way and it wasn't there. So then I started going up the way and it was above the line, quite a bit above the line actually. Um, and so far above the line that I actually was offered a free diploma place, which was ironic because First of all, I didn't really want to be a lawyer. Secondly, I had the money. There were lots of other younger, thrusting ones that wanted to be lawyers but never had the money. So I actually said, Why, can you give my diploma place? I'll pay for a place, but give that free place to someone else. Well, of course, the woman sat behind and the computer says no. We've never, had, we've never done that before, and the computer says no. So I thought, well, it's a sign. It's a sign. You know, I'm being offered a diploma place to sign. So um, I did that. I was a lawyer for a couple of years, did corporate law. But I, I walked around, this is going to sound wrong, but I walked around the place, the law firm, which is a building not dissimilar to this on several levels, as if I owned the place. And this is all relevant to the talk, by the way. As if I owned the place. But by that, I mean I switched the lights off, I picked up paper clips, you know, I would check the photocopier contract to make sure it was the right thing and all the rest of it. And I discovered that lawyers have not got a clue how to run a business. Not a clue. Right? Photocopier was insane money. They were paying ridiculous money for a website. It was something like 30 grand a year for their website. This is insane. Because what they said was that the, the company that sold it, you know, the man with the red braces and the ponytail that sold them the, the website, he said, oh, you know, a website's very difficult. You have to take the documentation that you want and then we have to code it and it has to be checked by a copywriter and then it has to be put up onto the website and each stage of the process they were paying hundreds of pounds for just to get this thing up. So I stepped in and said, I'll take over the website got called into the management room of there's five partners that manage and say, well, what gives you the right to take over this? And I said, because I probably know more about websites than you guys do, because your website is basically a giant JPEG. They didn't know what that was. Well, we've had someone that says he can get us to number one in Google over the weekend. Um, and I said, well, I could do that for you. And they said, well, if you do that, then you can, you can do this. You can do the, the whole website thing. But we have a budget. The budget's 25,000 pounds. It's like, right, okay. 
So over the weekend, I won't go into the details of how I did it, but over the weekend, their Google hits basically went from 40 to about 3,000. Okay? Black hat techniques, for those of you that are interested. Um, this mightily impressed them, and I was now able to look after the website. I got the whole website done, streaming, everything, bells and whistles, absolutely fantastic, tied into latest news and all the rest of it for £4,000, because that's what it should have been. Okay? So they saw the result of that. They started giving me other things to do. Anyway, I ended up making more money showing law firms how to run as a business than actually being a lawyer. And that's kind of important because I was, that, in, that led me to do public speaking for the first time. And uh, I went to an event in London, lots of lawyers in the room. And uh, I, I'd also had an article in a national newspaper that day, so a double spread, which was quite good. And some people had read it. And I was there talking about law firms and so on. And we did a, I did a presentation in a Q&A, and at the front, one guy, big, big chap, pinstripe, three-piece three pinstripe suit, you know, the sort of straining collar, red cheeks, um, a lawyer who liked to lunch, let's put it that way. And he said, um, you've been a lawyer for about five minutes, and you're trying to tell me how to run my business. Why should I listen to you? And I didn't say thanks for the feedback, but I probably should have. Uh, but I said to him, uh, I said, can I just replay that question to you? I've been a lawyer for five minutes, but you trying to tell you how to what? Run your, he went, oh, fair enough. And then suddenly loads of hands went up and everybody started asking me lots of questions. Anyway, I worked with a guy called Sir Brian Middleton, who was brilliant at doing all of that kind of stuff. But in the audience that day was a guy called Bill Morrow. Bill Morrow came up to me. He said, I'm about to start a business called Angel's Den. Would you like to come and work with us? Because you seem to have, you know, the skills we need. Whilst I was in the law firm, I also used to go to uh, Entrepreneurial Spark. Anyone heard of that? It's like an incubator for startups. I also went to Scottish Enterprise and gave sort of talks there on you know, the law and business because I had the, the unique combination of both. But Bill Morris said, come and work with us. Angels Den is the largest organization of invest, angel investors, high net worth individuals in the world. It's about 19,000 of them. And the idea was that they would match the angel investors with proposals, with deals. And it was all done through a thing called EIS, Enterprise Investment Scheme. And the Enterprise Investment Scheme is tax breaks basically for high net worth individuals, sophisticated investors, and also for startup companies. So it's a good match. But they didn't do property of any kind. Now, in the corporate world, we'd structured quite a few deals where um, people were you know, using other people's money to buy uh, property developments and all that sort of carry on. So we had a bit of experience in, in that area. Uh, but it meant that over the course of the next six, seven, eight years, I saw about six and a half thousand pitches for money from all different levels. And what interests me with, with these, because there was one in particular I saw a pitch, and it, there, were, there were several people in the company, and one of them gave the pitch to a room of investors. So to set the scene, it's a room not dissimilar to this, probably a similar number of people in the room, but they're investors. And the person looking for the money would come in and stand here and do a presentation and say, that's my presentation, then do a Q&A, and then the investors would write out if they want to invest or not. Right? That's kind of how it worked. We also did a thing called speed funding, which again, room about this size, tables like this. There might be five or six investors at each table and then a blank chair. And then if there are six tables, then there'd be six entrepreneurs that would come in to do speed pitching. So they would come in and sit down and a bell would ring and then they'd have three minutes to say, um, this is what I'm here for. And then there would be a bell would ring, then there'd be Q&A for another few minutes and then the bell would ring and then they'd get up and move round. 
and then do the same thing, just rinse and repeat. So we used to train those people to do that. And it always intrigued me when I saw a presentation that we had worked on and a person came up to do it, who was one of the directors, and they would get a certain result. And then another person would come up to do it, another director, and they get a different result from different investors. And that just kind of intrigued me, always made me a little bit. It's quite, quite interesting. I like things like that. I like to analyze the words people use, the body language they use, because it, it all has a relevance. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, we've all been Zoom calling for years. Well, not years, but a year, right? Doing Zoom call. How's that been going? Yeah. Um, some people like it, some don't. It has a place. Yes, it does. But not for a first introduction, right? It's fine if you've met somebody, and you get to know them, and that, then, then you do a Zoom call. That's fine. That's okay. But not as a starter and, and not uh, to do presentations because it, it kind of doesn't work. It's a bit disconnected there. But anyway, we had uh, a, a then a few investors that came to me and said, we want to invest in property. So we created Property Angels Den, which was specifically for property proposals. And then we started to get people coming and saying, I'm looking for money for this, I'm looking for money for that. But it was all a bit disjointed. And I got chatting to someone in, in, who told me that there were property training companies. So, of course, I did a search, property training companies. I saw quite a few. Um, one in particular looked quite interesting, um, progressive. And I thought, I'll give them my email address because they're going to send me a free report. That'll be the end of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, little did I know that they're quite persistent. Um, but good, good persistent. Uh, and a few other training companies as well that I'd seen but the feedback that I saw, so sort of with my lawyer's hat on, I thought, right, okay, let's analyze which might be the best one here. And also the lawyer who um, was the partner in the firm, I still, to this day, still do a lot of stuff with him. Um, but I, I showed him and, and he said, well, that looks quite a good one. So I ended up coming here. Now I came here for the purpose of finding out if the training was any good, right? Not, not that I wanted property training. I wanted to find out is the property training that's given by this company, is it good? Is it ethical? Does it tick all the boxes? Uh, are they following all the rules and regulations, et cetera? Or is it just a, you know, is it just a giant Ponzi scheme, whatever it was? So that, that's what led me to meeting Kevin and all the others and being here and doing podcasts and so on and so on. So um, I'm not employed by them at all, but uh, I'm forever grateful to Rob and Mark for all the stuff that they've done, you know, because you know, it is the real deal. It's great, great stuff. Um, I've joined uh, a thing called Inner Circle Mastermind, which is his, you know, you go to his house and you can talk, talk about all your challenges there. And he's brought in some fantastic people. I mean, if you've seen his podcasts, you know, the, this is not the Rob Moore show, but you know, if you've seen his podcasts, either Money or The Disruptive Entrepreneur, he gets some fantastic guests in. And you get a chance to, to chat to them as well. So, seen a lot of pitches. Um, after Angel's Den, we formed Raising Angel Finance, which was separated from because Angel's Den was being sold. There was a Bulgarian or Romanian company that wanted to buy it, and they had a, a big, big corporate plan for, for it. So I'm still a shareholder there, but I no longer you know, do the presentation. So I formed Raising Angel Finance, which is separate. I was encouraged by Rob to do a course here on Raising Angel Finance, which some of you may have seen. Um, I have a podcast called How to Raise Money, and I have taught pitching and getting money from investors to about a thousand people in rooms like this and then to many more online and still do sort of weekly Zoom calls, that sort of thing. So from that, I, I, there's always, I always like to see, well, what makes somebody successful and what makes someone you know, not so successful? When the project itself could be absolutely fine, 
Nothing wrong with the project, right? Project is fine. How come some of them get funded and others don't? So that's always interested me. I always find that quite interesting. And it always, always, always comes down to the individual, okay? Now, you might get pitch training and people say, oh yeah, pitch training, you've just got to be enthusiastic. Just be enthusiastic and smile, as if that's gonna get you the money, all right? There's a bit more to it than that. There's sort of nuances to it than that. But there was one in particular, one company in particular, who were to do a presentation. So set the scene, we would get uh, applications in from a, a potential uh, people that want to borrow the money from, in, from entrepreneurs or property developers. And I would work with them to do a 10 minute presentation on, on sort of slideshows, that sort of thing. And then they would come and present it live. So they'd present their slides and they would be here and they'd be here for a Q&A. And it happened in London, in London, city of London, in a big law firm there. We used to get a room full of investors and, and we'd, we'd bring three in to do three 10 minute presentations. Then afterwards we'd all go for a drink next door and chat about it. And I was always very interested in the body language and also who, was, who, you know, who the investors were looking at. Why did they choose that one? So I would go over to them and say, well, what made you pick that? And all the feedback from that has all been extremely useful. But there was one time, um, and so just to let you know that it, statistically, if you came to a presentation, usually between 50 and 70% of the room would want to invest, okay? Because they know we've done a lot of screening, they know we've done a lot of pre-qualifications. So when you're in the room, you've pretty much got a good chance of getting the money. Not everybody, but most people, you've got 50 to 70% chance. There was one time when we got 85% of the room, and that was because one of the uh, developers who was coming to the event was stuck in traffic and he asked me to do it for him. So I stood there and did the presentation on his behalf, 85%. And I found that quite interesting. Hmm, why would that be? Not because I'm any wonderful or anything like that, or is it? I don't know. But then we had another occasion. So I was quite strutting around like the cock of the walk because I had got the best results of anyone. And then I was knocked off my pedestal by a company who didn't even present. They made a video because they were too nervous about doing a presentation. But that wasn't the reason why they did the video. I will show you the video and then I'll tell you why. Is that okay? Yeah. So let me now plug in this video. Now, th this is being recorded for a podcast. So on the podcast episode, this sound might not come out terribly well, but there will be a link in the show notes. Right, so we're now about to play the video. And for those of you that are listening on the podcast, you can click on the link below and you will see the video. So here we go. We are Verto and we're here to change the world. We're going to do it by changing the way people live or more specifically by changing the homes we live in. To live sustainably at our current rate of resource consumption, we'd need five planet Earths. But we don't have five planet Earths. So if we want modern society to remain viable, we have to consume less. It's not rocket science, it's common sense. So if you're looking to reduce people's carbon emissions, their homes are a great place to start. Especially when you consider that 27% of the UK's carbon emissions come from the residential housing sector. That's why we build sustainable smart homes. They represent a more intelligent and responsible way of living. By employing state-of-the-art micro-generation technology to harness the free, clean energy of the sun. Factor in their total insulation and highly efficient heating and lighting systems and they generate more energy than you need to keep them bright and warm. 
The best bit is that through the government-backed feed-in tariff scheme, the big energy companies will buy back the energy your home produces directly from you. So, if you use your home responsibly, you won't pay any more energy bills, ever. Giving you more money to spend on you and your family. Verto's sustainable smart homes are an opportunity to reduce people's carbon footprint without forcing them to change their behavior. Many people talk about building a better world, but not many mean it as literally as we do. One day all homes will be built like this, but for now, there's Verto. Okay, right. Now, imagine for one second that you are an investor, you've got money to invest. They're looking for £900,000 for the project, okay? You've just watched it. You've now got to write down whether you would invest in it or not. Now, you could have anything from 50,000 to a million pounds, whatever, it doesn't matter, okay? Show me your hands if you would invest in that company. Show me your hands if you wouldn't. You're not sure. You don't know what the question is, okay? All right, they got 100%. 100% of the room, first time ever, they got 100% of the room. Now notice, there was no talk of, here's the site, here's the location, uh, da, 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 right? They just talked about the concept behind it. But why did they get 100%? Because when they came in and when we played the video, they did a Q&A afterwards, but when we went to play the video, the guy said one very interesting phrase. He came in and said, we're very nervous about public speaking, so we've made a video, but we're here for Q&A afterwards. Um, and we got a video made because we're going to go and raise more money elsewhere um, to get this project and other projects like it funded. So I hope you like the video. So what was the phrase? We've got other options. Yes, we're going to go somewhere else. Now, here's the thing that they had and the difference between those who get the money and those who don't. The ones that get the money have, first of all, an absolute belief that they're going to get funded. And that belief comes from the fact that they are doing something that's within their values. They have a vision for what they want to see and they replay that vision to themselves over and over again. It's going to happen, doesn't matter what. Whether you, whether you invest it or not, it's happening. Right? That's it. And if you don't want to invest, there's plenty more. There's plenty of money around, but there's not plenty of deals like this. That was the attitude and the approach they took. And that's the difference. And that is the key common denominator between all the ones that get funded and all the ones that don't, is that utter, utter belief. It's going to happen. And you can't knock them off it. Now, I, I have... Um, met other companies with similar types of projects. And, I, and when I speak to them, I can find out very quickly, just after a few minutes, that they don't have that same belief. Now, the belief comes from your vision, your values, your financial appraisals, that you've got it all worked out, your what ifs, what if it doesn't go, what if it goes wrong, what if, whatever. And once you've worked all of that out, you get an inner confidence that just you cannot replicate. You cannot replicate, it just comes out of you. So when you're looking for money or you're meeting investors or whatever, that's the sort of things that you have to have. Now, I was going to go on and show you another video, but with the technical challenges we're having, I'm not going to. But that video that Verto have since has, has done, not only did they raise money for that, but they've gone on in the last five years to raise much more, a lot more using the same video right, from investors. Because that's all they need to do. Because it's nice, it's short and sharp. Okay? They paid... I think it was about £5,000 for that to get it made. You can get a video made like that today for about how much? Anybody? 50 quid? Any advance on 50 quid? Close, 75. You can get a video like that made for about 75 quid. You write the script, you can do the voiceover, 
And if you keep it to about a minute, you can get it done on fiverr.com for about 75 quid. That quality. How hard is that? How hard can it be? Does that revolutionize or change things for you? It might. Some of you might think it's not applicable to me, but others might think, well, actually, yeah, it's not a bad idea. I'm here to tell you that investors, lenders like that kind of thing. Why do they like it? Because I'm, when I do presentations to people, I always say, if you're going to put a presentation together, put it together so that a 12-year-old child can understand it. Forget that they're merchant bankers or forget that they've got you know, 100 million to lend, whatever it is. We're all 16, no matter what age you are. Do you know what I mean? And sometimes life language and things can get in the way of that. But keep it simple, keep it nice and neat. Appeal to their sensitivities and you will get funded anyway. I've been Ray McLean. Thank you very much for listening. Okay, thanks very much for that, Ray. And so for anyone uh, listening to the podcast, if they were to uh, reach out to you, what would be the best way? How should they do that? Uh, yeah, uh, just, well, we have, uh, if someone reaching out to us, it's usually for a, one of a couple of things. It's usually because we want some money so that we have an, a process for that. Obviously, there's an online application form. You can get the application form on the website, which is called raisingangelfinance.co.uk, and you will see uh, right in top center, it says application form. You just click on the application form, and there's eight questions there. You fill in the questions. We get you a decision in principle. Now, that is not a decision in principle from private investors. What we do is, if you are looking to fund a project, we can approach banks and other institutions. And they will give you a certain percentage. And then we can come in and top up from private investors. That's a much better way for you, because private investors are more expensive. Okay? We have had situations where um, people that are doing developments, we've reached out to us for one case in particular. He doesn't mind me mentioning it now. Ian Morton, who's here. Ian Morton's in Leeds. He does a lot of projects. And he was looking for £200,000, but he already had 800000 from a lender. So uh, one of our investors went to see him, walked the site, saw this other stuff that he'd done, and then agreed to lend him the whole lot. Because he said, well, if you're giving the bank 6%, why don't you give me 6%? It's just sitting there doing nothing anyway. So that sort of thing can happen. Um, Fantastic. And, 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 and you've got a couple of podcasts as well. And I've got a couple of podcasts. So there's the How to Raise Money podcast, and there's a second podcast, which is called The Skill Stack, which is about, it's mostly aimed at frustrated professionals. Because quite a lot of lawyers reached out to me and said, oh, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. How come you did it? Can I do it? So I work with sort of lawyers who want to leave the law or doctors or dentists who don't want to be it anymore. But they're in a gilded cage. They like the money they get, but they don't enjoy what they're doing. And it's just about helping them see that there are plenty of things they can do about that. Oh. Okay, so thanks very much, Ray. And thanks for listening to the Service Accommodation Property Podcast. Hey! <laughs> <laughs>